I'm Dave. This is Letters from Cone. And our segment today is titled Yippitayai Utah. Before the Mormons came over Comb Ridge in 1880 into Bluff, there were non-Mormon settlers, several Native American tribes, cattle companies, and an assortment of strange folks of all descriptions in the area already. For many of them, the reason why they were there was because there was nowhere else for them to be, and the area had a reputation of being a haven for outlaws, renegade Native Americans, and ne'er-do-wells of varying ill repute. The mission of the poor Mormons who were directed here in 1879 was to serve as bait to draw out marauding Native Americans from the interior population centers of southern Utah. In addition, the Mormons were tasked with taming the West to stop bank robbers, cattle rustlers, horse thieves, train robbers, prison escapees, and desperate criminals of all types. If they failed in this task, they were essentially expendable. This means that they were to bring the eastern threat of lawlessness under control to keep it from spilling over and soiling the dainty citizens of St. George, Cedar City, and Beaver. And if they failed, they could be sacrificed, lambs to the slaughter sent by the Lord himself. This extremely remote area had never seen law and order, and it was very attractive to those who wished to avoid law and order. The topography was perfect for outlaws to hide out in, and there was no government. And the first 10 years after the Mormons arrived, law and order was served up by civil authorities who took orders from the church officials. Many of the Mormons carried a nagging grudge about this whole situation. After leaving their homes and wealth behind and barely surviving an insanely gruesome trip by wagon across the Colorado Plateau, a year later, the territorial legislature established the county of San Juan and appointed Silas Smith as probate judge, along with three selectmen and a clerk. And just like the saying goes, the next and inevitable steps were death and taxes. In early 1881, a Navajo man named Navajo Frank, a large man who had a reputation for thievery, disrespect, and meanness, was caught stealing horses but escaped. A few weeks later, a Mormon settler saw Frank with one of the settler's favorite horses on the south side of the San Juan River. The settler retrieved the horse and returned to town where he promptly informed the bishop, who then asked the settler to go back and try to recover the stolen animals. Local Navajos helped him find Frank, who was then caught in possession of another stolen horse. The settler stared Frank down and told him that if he kept stealing from the Mormons, he would, quote, take sick and die. A few months later, Frank was seen in Bluff looking emaciated and ill. Frank pleaded with the settler to write a letter to God with his promise to never steal from the Mormons again if he would spare his life. The economic crisis continued in Bluff, and the men of Bluff left again for work in Colorado, again leaving the remaining locals to defend themselves. As Spaghetti Westerns would have it, two heavily armed men rode into town looking to trade horses. During the conversation, one of the settlers commented, 
absent-mindedly that such a deal would be pretty difficult because the horses were herded up in Butler Wash. As would be expected, the two men left town and casually took off with the herd. The bishop organized a posse and gave them instructions to track the thieves but not overtake them without help from nearby communities. But, oops, they ran into the thieves at Hall's Crossing, attempted to recover the stolen items, and a gunfight erupted in which one outlaw was killed and one posse member was critically wounded. It's interesting to note here that the posse was organized and deployed by the bishop and no civil officers took part, a clear example of a church-run vigilante-style state which persisted for years. As you can see, southeastern Utah could have been the poster child for spaghetti westerns, complete with anti-heroes, with questionable and selfish morals, motivated by money or revenge, despicable villains that represent the worst in people, misunderstood heroes who sacrifice it all, desert landscapes, shanty towns, and black and white morality. The 1880s saw a flourishing cattle industry which, unfortunately, tended to attract wanted fugitives. Reportedly, many cowboys working for the cattle companies refused to travel east of Dolores for fear of the long arm of the law over there. Four suspicious men hired on at the LC Cattle Company in Elmo, and after a couple of weeks of work, they departed and took the company horses with them. A bluff settler spotted them in Butler, Washington, was run off by gunfire and stumbled into the Sunday church meeting with a report. The bishop dispatched another vigilante posse, and they were joined by men from the LC. The posse caught up to the wrestlers, and of course, they were ambushed by the thieves from an ancient Anasazi ruin. A posse member named Bill Ball, who just happened to be the foreman of the LC, was killed. The perpetrators robbed him of his spurs and pistol as he lay dying, and they escaped to cross the Colorado River. This wasn't the last time the Mormons heard of the Carlisle Cattle Company. In July of the same year, the Carlisles got an injunction saying the water of North Fork was the property of the Cattle Company, and it diverted the water out of the Monticello irrigation ditch, and a long litigation process followed. Eventually, the court found that the L.C., and the Mormons should equally share the water. Well, the population of the county grew quickly and so did crime. And it was time for real law enforcement down there. They needed a real law enforcement system. So Sheriff Butt, B-U-T-T, was elected. He was the first sheriff to get a wage. And he worked closely with Federal Marshal Bush to improve the system. Bush was a bit of a ruffian and an occasional drunkard and carried a sawed-off shotgun to make his intentions clear, but he got along with the Mormons. Things became tense between the Mormons and the L.C. Cattle Company. Cowboys would ride through town shooting at the buildings and terrorizing the citizens. Both parties projected the standard stereotypes, and it soon came to a head. A Mormon man's freight wagon, stuck in the mud north of Monticello, was looted by the cowboys, including medicinal whiskey, which they drank immediately. They then proceeded into Monticello and spent the night shooting up the town, during which one cowboy shot himself in the foot. 
That cowboy holed up in his sister's house and Sheriff Bush followed him there. The cowboy waited in ambush behind a curtain, but Bush saw the pistol sticking out from the curtain and blasted the curtain with his shotgun, shredding both the curtain and the cowboy. There was a new sheriff in town and real law enforcement had arrived in San Juan County. The Carlisle Cattle Company conflict eventually ended up with the Mormons petitioning the court to drop an assault to commit murder charge against the company's foreman. The petition read, We have never known anything bad about him, except his excessive use of liquor, which alone, we are satisfied, is the responsible agency which caused him to do the act complained of. We know he feels the shame and senses the disgrace and wrong of his conduct. This petition was signed by many citizens and politicians and eased tensions between the two parties. As for the foreman's real character, it appears he was more villainous than given credit by the native citizens. Before his marriage to a Mormon girl, the bishop interviewed him and asked him if he had ever killed anyone. Reportedly, he said he did not think so, unless one counted the black man he and some of his friends had encountered bathing in a water hole and had pushed him under the water. The unabashed church oversight of law enforcement continued into the early 1900s, and the influence is still noticeable to this day. A near-perfect example of this church-enforced politics was Bishop Dudley Love in the Monkey Wrench Gang by Edward Abbey. The character is modeled after the real-life Cal Black, a San Juan County commissioner in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. A uranium mine owner, a mine worker, a real estate tycoon, and a businessman who for all intents and purposes ran the county. Black is often referred to as the original sagebrush rebel. He resented what he called federal colonialism, the idea that lawmakers in Washington, D.C. can dictate what Utahns can and can't do in their own backyards. A good example of how this attitude has been passed down to the generations in San Juan County is the refusal there to be vaccinated for COVID-19. Nobody is going to tell those rebels what to put in their own bodies even if it kills them to refuse it. But back to Cal Black. Black's primary beef was that the feds were using environmental laws like the Wilderness Act and the Federal Policy Management Act to close off lands for uranium mining, oil extraction, and cattle grazing. And this was how he and most of the folks in San Juan County made their livings. Since then, the market has dropped for those activities and those uses of the land, and the primary method now of earning a living is becoming the tourist industry, which many in San Juan County are now enthusiastically embracing. And tourists don't like lands that have been butchered by mining and cattle grazing. In my opinion, the whole idea of complete independence from the mother country at everyone else's expense is a bit idealistic and kind of greedy. It's not brave, it's not right, it's not smart. It just is. The leaders of the original Sagebrush Rebellion that developed in the 70s included Cal Black, Warren Hatch, 
and other powerful politicians from Utah, Nevada, and Idaho. Funding came mostly from the mining and extraction industries, and there was some violence. Black himself told the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, that he was so fed up, quote, I'll blow up bridges, ruins, and vehicles, and start a revolution. He didn't, but there was continuous vandalism of archeological sites that seemed politically motivated. Ultimately, the locals had disdain for Jimmy Carter. President Jimmy Carter was considered a hateful landlord in absentia. But the election of President Reagan and the appointment of James Watt as Secretary of Interior defused the rebellion, leaving the locals far less to rebel about. Black, though, continued fighting the feds right up to his death in 1990 from throat cancer. He had been the mayor of Blanding and a county commissioner for 21 years, served in the state legislature, and ran the county with an iron fist. At his passing, an unexpected tribute came from a man who stood for what he did not. He wrote the following to Cal Black in December of 1988. Dear Cal, I hear rumors that you've come down with a serious illness. If true, I hope you beat it. Although you and I probably disagree about almost everything, you should know that I have never felt the slightest ill will towards you as a person. Furthermore, you still owe me an airplane ride. Good luck and best wishes, Edward Abbey. That's it for today's podcast, and I'm Dave Lack. Talk to you later.